this episode was a long time in the making. And actually, by having done this episode, it feels like I've checked something off my list. My dad, who, if you've been listening to the podcast, I had a very complicated relationship with. He didn't play an active role in raising me, and I felt very abandoned by him in many ways, and and still do, even though now he's gone. But my father, late in his life, got a very aggressive form of cancer, and we did get to know each other on a really deep level before he left. And one of the strange transformations that happened getting to know him over the course of the years is kind of out of left field, he became really spiritual. He became a God guy, and he was always an intellectual before. He could hardly get around. He would kind of hobble from piece of furniture to piece of furniture using his arms as a third and fourth feet on countertops to hop from one thing to the other. And when he would get a little thing done, he'd go, yay, God. One of the obsessions he had towards the end is he became obsessed with the idea of him booking today's guest, Bob Goff, on my show. And he had this whole plan for how he was going to book Bob Goff and charter a plane to go to his very remote place in British Columbia, Canada. I didn't tell him that my mom and Bob are actually close friends and I, I could probably manage to book Bob Goff on my show just fine, but I just, I let him have it. It was complicated. On one hand, it was just another thing that he didn't follow through on. He did not book Bob Goff on my show. On the other hand, it was amusing to watch him interested in this specific person. So reading Bob Goff's books for prepping for this interview was quite a trip. I felt a lot of things. I think there's anger that was coming up from the stuff I'm working through with my dad and trying to be at peace with what happened. I might be the first person on planet Earth to have rage-read Bob Goff, but there was lots of emotions coming up and lots of feelings. It was challenging. I mean, my best friend and producer Reese and my mom all know that reading his books brought up a lot of stuff. Bob is a ball of energy. He's incredibly enthusiastic. He loves the word whimsy and is so positive that reading the positivity through the feelings of pain and abandonment and anger that I was feeling at the same time was pretty strange. I had no idea what to expect talking to Bob today, but it's safe to say that before he even said two words, he had already disarmed me, and a lot of that faded away. There's a morning reading I really like, which was suggested to me when I got sober. One of the things it mentions is look to where religious people are right. It's been a long journey to get there, but I'm starting to really embrace this idea more of looking where these faiths have done something true and found something real. That's what I did with Bob. Bob's a man of faith. He's a very devout Christian and very enthusiastic about Jesus. And I tried to read what I thought Bob had nailed. And not to spoil anything, but one of the things Bob has done, whether you love him or hate him, he's followed through on what he says he wants to do. This is somebody who has started multiple schools across the world. I think it started with a school in Uganda. Someone who has really put his money where his mouth is. I think you as a human are so much more than just the things you do, but for the simplicity of having a barometer of how you're doing, it really is a safe place to start, which is you are what you do. You have a lot of thoughts throughout the day and a lot of emotions, and I'm not saying that they're not important, but if you play guitar today, you're a musician. And if you make art today, you're an artist. And if you're kind today, you're a kind person. I think it's just the simplest way to stay on track because it's so easy to stray from the ideal version of ourselves we hold in our mind rather than the distracted person who might go out into the world and forget to be kind and loving. So one of the things that most impressed me about Bob is this is somebody who has really put into action 
the things tugging on his heart and really built things in the real world because he just took the next right step and did it. So this conversation might not mean the same thing to you as it means to me. To me, I'm going through this existential experience of kind of like a loop being completed. It feels like reading one of the last chapters of a book and, and coming to the end of that chapter and being on a new one. But here is a really lovely conversation I had with somebody who's really good at putting what they preach into practice, Bob Goff. Hello, Bob. Good to see you. Good to see you. This interview has been a long time coming, and you might not know that because <laughs> we haven't Tell me about that. Well, my mom's a big fan of yours, obviously, but the, the reason when I knew that one day I'd have to have you on is late in my father's life. He just became obsessed with the idea of booking you on my show before he died. Oh, really? Wow. Honored, he, to, uh, honored to make it on. And he lived in Vancouver and he did a lot of work preserving British Columbia forests. And he had this whole plan in his mind that he was going to book you and get the seaplane and get me to you. And... And I backed off because I was just, you know, I, I was like, well, you know, I think I could probably get a hold of him, but I just, it was one of the things that he became interested in late in his life. And he wasn't Christian until the very end. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. I'm really keen on preserving the forest there in British Columbia. We've really been intentional about taking the steps to make sure that these things are, it's called a deed restriction. You put a deed restriction on it to say nobody can cut down anything. Just let the next generation enjoy it. Yeah. So I start the podcast the same way every time. And this can be as big or as small of a question as you'd like. But Bob, who are you? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, some people identify with some initials behind their a name or some stuff that they do. But first and foremost, I'm Sweet Maria Goff's husband. Uh, we've got three kids, Lindsay, Richard, and Adam. Each of them married somebody, and most of them made somebody. <laughs> so I'm a, I'm a grandpa as well. We've got three grandkids, two have arrived, one's on the way. And then where I spend most of my time is maybe nine months of the years in San Diego, and the rest of the time is up in Canada. Uh, up at the end of uh, the Jervis Inlet, or I think our nearest neighbor uh, is 10,000 square miles away. So we're kind of like uh, hippies without tie-dye t-shirts for three months out of the year. We make our electricity off a glacier in half of the last 27 years. We grow our food. We catch our dinners in the rivers. And so that's me. I, I write books every once in a while. I at one point was a lawyer uh, for maybe 30 years or so. I uh, lived in San Diego and commuted to Seattle, uh, which is crazy, every day uh, for a quarter of a century. I would fly up in the morning and fly back in the evening, just the worst seat on the plane, way in the back. And I would just type out books when I was going back and forth. I don't argue with people, uh, which seems kind of counterintuitive for a lawyer, but I just find that exhausting. So whether it's somebody in a faith community or somebody on the other side of uh, litigation, I just, I'm not an arguer. I just want to do some stuff that lasts. And that eventually drove me out of being a lawyer and into doing some humanitarian stuff. So these days I spend most of my time, uh, if it was like pre-vid, uh, then what I'm doing is we've got schools in 10 countries and maybe two or three schools per country. So most of the time I'm just checking in, riding the fence post, seeing, making sure everybody's doing okay. For the conversation, your nonprofit is now called Love Does, right? Yeah, that's it. Okay. Yeah, I, I, wrote started... a book, I wrote a book maybe 10 or 12 years ago called Love Does and more people understood that name than I think it was called Restore International before. But the whole idea is the same. How could you help kids just get an education so nothing nothing fancy just important i read love does to start and then i read dream big dream big seemed like one that you should own in print so i did the dream big in print and I oh did man honored love does digitally because it was easier 
So it was interesting to watch the progression, like the, the evolution, I would say, of your work. Because in Love Does, you're still working as a lawyer. And then in Dream Big, you jump in full time, right? Yeah, I, I stepped out of the elevator on the 17th and 18th floor of a building downtown in Seattle. Uh, and I walked up to the receptionist and she said, who are you here to see? <laughs> and I'm like, actually, that's my name right behind you. Uh, and I realized I hadn't been in my own office in almost a year. I'd flown to Seattle every day. Um, I just had other things going on. And then I started spending more and more time overseas. Um, we're really keen on schools that would allow women uh, to get a shot at an education and then all the possibilities uh, that might uh, spring up from that. And I realized uh, I quit things on Thursdays, uh, always one thing every Thursday. So it was a Thursday. And so I got everybody together in our biggest conference room and I quit. <laughs> I said, I'm out of here. And I took the ring off my key ring to the front door of this place. Uh, and I gave it to a guy who'd worked for me for a decade or more. And I said, it's all yours. You don't owe me anything. <laughs> and I left and I've never gone back. I'm really keen on that burn the ships moment where you can make a move. And I always think of this idea of being a new creation that for each of us, wherever anybody is on a faith line, that we could be new creations. And I don't want to do what I'm capable of, uh, which is be a lawyer. I want to do what I feel a greater sense of calling to, which is to be available because most of the people that are running the countries are old guys like me. So whether it's Afghanistan or Somalia or something, you could actually have a conversation and to say, Hey, I got, I got no agenda here. I just want to do schools for girls and, uh, we can train some boys too, but mostly girls. Wonderful. So to catch you up a little bit on, on who I am and, and where I'm at. I would say I am a misanthrope in recovery. I'm a oh, cynic. I like that. I'm a cynic in recovery. And that really is, for whatever reason, that became my comfortable place. It was yeah. incredibly safe. And I prided myself on almost like being cynical was a virtue. Like I was smarter than everyone else because I could see the bad in things. Well, it actually is. If you're an old school cynic, those guys rocked it. New school cynics, not so much. The new school cynics rolls their eyes and says, ah, Southwest Airlines, like what, you know, what's up? Uh, but the old school, uh, have you ever heard of a guy named Diosthenes? He lived inside a water jar. I kid you not, look it up. But he lived in a water jar and he walked through Athens every day at noon uh, with a lit lantern. And people said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm looking for virtue. And so your buddy, you're an old school cynic. So you're going from new school cynic back to Diosthenes in the water jar because he was the founder of cynicism. Isn't that awesome? You're just going old school. <laughs> it, it, it is awesome in a way. So it, my spiritual life has gone many places. I was raised Christian. And actually during the height of my addiction, I was a drug addict, a meth addict, an alcoholic. I was incredibly spiritual because my life was in chaos. And every time I didn't die, every time I didn't get robbed, it was like, oh my God, thank you, God. And I had this, per I had a personal God. I had a relationship with a higher power. And when I got sober, I couldn't connect in the same way anymore. It just, for whatever reason, it didn't match where I was at. So I spent my first years of recovery as an atheist and not a fun atheist, like the kind of atheist who wants everybody to believe what I believe and I'm going to shit on your religion, I guess, just to make me feel better. And what happened was, is at about the four year mark, I'm looking around, I've gotten sober with fellow addicts in recovery and I'm looking around and one of the suggestions in recovery is have a higher power. We don't care what it is. Just have something greater than yourself because your best thinking got you here and that's not so great. I noticed that the guys who had a deep spiritual life were just doing better than me. And I kind of said to hell with whatever I think is objectively true. I want what they have. And I started praying and I started trying to connect spiritually. It's been 
six years, I guess now, since I have 10 years recovered. Man, good uh, for you. Uh, I, in both respects, the courageous road of recovery, and then also this road towards understanding what you believe and why. What ended up happening is I became a prayer person before I even believed there was anything outside myself because I just saw it working. I saw it leading to people being more charitable and more of service and kinder and more patient. And I am somebody who's trying to find where that fits for me. And in the morning reading of uh, a morning reading that I do, which is recovery based, it says, look to where religious people are right. And that's where I'm at right now. It's oh, just, interesting. Yeah, that's a great thought. Yeah, it doesn't say be religious. It just says look to where they're right. And I've come, I've come to deeply appreciate more about spirituality and even about larger organized religions just by changing that frame of mind. And it's a slow process. You know, my first instinct is still, oh God, the world is effed and doomed. We're all screwed. I'm screwed. I'm a complete failure. And so. Just to be honest, just to come forward, reading your work and immersing myself in your work for two books of yours, it's challenging for me to get through. I feel that resistance bubbling up. I feel that, I think it's a fear-based thing. I think it's, a, it's afraid to believe what you're telling because when you hope, you can always have your hopes dashed, right? It's almost like if you never stand up, you won't fall down and then you never stand up. Yeah, well said. A friend of mine, Claire, in our book club mentioned that she was in a class and her professor was talking about a conversation that theologians had, were having when they got together to try and decide what was the worst sin in the Christian faith. They came up with despair because despair was the lack of hope. And I thought that was not an obvious answer, but I've been thinking about that a lot. And your work has a ton to do with hope. I guess if we could just bring the, the listeners up to speed. How would you describe your personal philosophy, how you human and how you like to go through life, which in love does is described as whimsy, but how would you tell that to a, a child? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, a couple of thoughts on that. Uh, most of us don't want to be controlled. We want to be influenced. Right. And so sometimes what happens in faith communities, well-meaning people inside and outside of faith communities for that matter, uh, they want you to go from here to here and they mean well, but I don't want to be controlled. I don't know. How about you? No, I think I'm, no. I'm a rebel. Yeah. Yeah. So I was speaking somewhere. It was just uh, a month or two ago. There was a large gathering of people and the guy that had organized it all um, wanted me to go from here to, to over there. Um, here, check this out. I'm, we're just going to do this. Hello, it's Bob here. I'm doing okay. Hey, listen, I'm just talking to a friend. Anything fast I can do for you? Uh, this is Reed Davenport, and uh, I was just looking for advice. I'm running a... Do, do this, Reed. Give me a call back in about an hour, and I'll talk to you then. All right, man. All right, talk to you soon. Here's an example. I put my cell phone number in the back of three and a half million books, uh, <laughs> and I get a hundred calls a day from people. I'm going to put this on silent just so uh, we don't get interrupted again. But uh, what I'm learning is about constantly being interrupted uh, and that that is a really good reset for me uh, to just say hello to people, to not send people to voicemail. And it falls under this category of control versus influence. I'm not trying to control this guy, nor am I going to tell him what he ought to do when we get a chance to talk in an hour. But what I hope I'll do is have some influence on him. But the influence I have is I'm not trying to buy into anything. I just, the influence I want to, him to know is the influence that comes with availability. I'm a man of faith. Like faith is a big deal for me. And it's uh, in one of the books in the Bible, it's Hebrews 11, 1. It says that faith is confidence in what you're hoping for and assurance in what you haven't seen yet. And so I kind of get that. I like that definition. Uh, and it all comes from what am I hoping for? And I'm hoping I can influence people and I'm hoping that I won't try to control them because this guy that organized the event tried to, he grabbed me by the shoulders 
and he tried to get me from here to over there. And I'm like, what hospital do you want to go to? <laughs> People don't want to be controlled. And I'm one of them and you're another one of them. But had he said, Bob, I think I know why you're here. I know what you want to accomplish. And you could accomplish a lot more of that if you just move 30 yards to your left. I, I would be like, let's go. We skip that step with people. We try to control them. We try to get them to our way of thinking. or, or And it doesn't come from a bad place. I'm sure he had a good reason to get me over there. But I happened to be in a conversation with a guy like Reese who called up and it would have been rude to not have spoken to him. Um, and so there was this competition of things. Uh, in Romans, they say it's, it's seven. And Paul says, I keep doing what I don't want to do. And I don't do what I do want to do. And man, that's just Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. For me, the revelation is that I've got a clear idea of what I'm hoping for. And what I hope will be is a more available, humble guy every day. That's my goal. I want to be a more available, humble guy. So when I get a chance to talk to you or Reese a little bit later today, I go like, I just want to be that guy. I'm never the smartest guy in the room, but I can be the most available guy in the room. When you wake up in the morning and you're priming yourself for the day and you're trying to be of service to your faith and your higher power and your, your values and principles, what is it that you're asking for or hoping for as you move through the day? What are you trying to be in the world as you go out into another day of your life? Yeah, just think of availability. I'm a trial lawyer, so I have all kinds of thoughts. I got an opinion about everything. Um, but what I do is, you know, in the cartoons, they have a little thought bubble over your head. Um, I have my thought bubbles full of stuff. I just don't let a lot of stuff leak out of my thought bubble. So if somebody's uh, being really difficult, uh, that isn't what I let leak out of my thought bubble. What I'm trying to do is fill the thought bubble with this. I wonder what's going on in their life that would cause them to be so on edge. Or I wonder what's going on in their life to cause them to have and demonstrate so much peace and joy right now. So I'm just trying to replace what I'm filling my thought bubble with. Old Bob, he'd be like, what a jerk. New Bob, I wonder if he ran over his cat. Because <laughs> you would have had to have something really bad happen to be that anxious. So what I'm doing is trying to be a little bit more compassionate for people that let things slip out of their thought bubble. They're just working on their people skills. And I think I'm quick to understand that God is working on different things in your life than he happens to be working on in my life right now. Sometimes what we try to do to our fault and to people's damage is to assume he's working on the same thing in you that he's working on in me and to just chill out. <laughs> what do you think the, the, the advantages are? What do you think your secret weapon is as somebody with faith, maybe psychologically or just the way that you move through the world than somebody who's just kind of on autopilot or just kind of waking up and letting the day take? Yes. Oh, I totally get that. I'm super curious. I think you are too. Is that one of your attributes? Yeah. 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 So I'm super curious. Somebody said like, let me cut to the chase. And whenever I hear an idiom like that, I just think, oh, I wonder where that came from. Is there like some dude named Chase and some Shakespeare plays? And that's where that phrase came from. Uh, and it's, it comes from the silent movies that there wasn't any dialogue to follow. So there was always a chase scene. And so cut to the chase was like, can we get to the part where something happens in my faith? I want to cut to the chase. I want to go to the part where something happens with it, that it isn't just a collection of information or I got all the information I need. I don't care what words mean in Greek right now. I don't care how many boats are floating in the sea, Galilee. I just want to know how you and I can activate whatever it is that we have to bring to the world. Part of it is just answering the phone and saying hello to a guy named Reese. So that's cutting to the chase. That's the chase scene for him. One of the things I like in Love Does is you wrote, we are made to fail. That's how we're taught. And there was a big focus on, hey, if we were supposed to be perfect, we would have come out perfect, but we're not perfect. 
the way that we learn is through failure. And I was wondering, I know a lot of people, especially in this community, because I have severe mental health stuff and life, like existing can be really exhausting for me. And I've taken some, some big hits and the challenges I go through, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of my, my friends listening go through, is when you get really beaten down, it's so hard to find hope again or, or to find a way to make it make sense or to believe that it's, it's, you know, to try again. And I was wondering if you could talk about your philosophy on failure and how to get up, especially during the big ones, the loss of the love of your life, whether divorce or untimely death or the, you know, the loss of a child or screwing up and not living up to your ideals. Maybe you betray the confidence of your spouse or these big losses in life that really leave scars on you. Yeah, I, uh, they let me surprisingly teach at Pepperdine Law School. I've been teaching there 15 years. I also teach at San Quentin and, uh, and I've got maybe 150 guys in my class. But this one guy called me up, his name was Kevin. And he said, Bob, I'm on the other side of the wall. Gosh, dude, tell me there are not bed sheets tied together. And he said, no, no, no. I got released this morning and a guy met me. I borrowed his phone and I wanted you to be my first call. And I'm like, oh man. And I thought it was going to be one of these amazing moments. Cause I was just kind of, like I said, Kevin, tell me what your first thought is. You're standing on the other side uh, of this wall. What are you thinking? And he paused a second and he said, I've got pockets. <laughs> I was thinking there would be something a little bit deeper uh, that he would say. But uh, in a moment of clarity, I told him, uh, be really careful what you put in those pockets of yours. In San Quentin, you can't have pockets uh, because you'll put the wrong stuff in it. It'll be something to shank somebody or something you aren't supposed to have on you. And now that we have pockets, what if we're really mindful about what we carry around in them? Do you want to carry around these failures? Do you want to fill all your pockets full of those? And I'm a little bit of an eccentric guy, so I know we'd get along famously. I have no left pockets in any of my clothes, like even my pants right now. I've got a right pocket. I've got no left pocket. I cut them all out. Uh, and it reminds me that I about like, what am I carrying with me and what am I going to let go of? If I put my car keys in my left pocket by mistake, it, it ends up in my shoe. Like they're just gone. And so I think like right pocket stuff and left pocket stuff. I want to fill my pockets with hope, with, uh, uh, with uh, curiosity, uh, with the kind of virtues uh, that Diosthenes was looking for. What I want to do is to move to my left pocket, some of the woundedness, some of that sense that I'm the victim, some of that sense that I'm the hero. I want to let those things go. And the beautiful thing is there's only 18 inches separating those two pockets, but it's an important 18 inches. And I want to go, I need to go left pocket on that. And it's been a mindset for me to just say, it's not that it's unimportant. It's just unimportant to me. I'm going to let that go. It's just not helpful for me anymore. I'm being careful what I put in my pockets. Sometimes with a rich history of failure, sometimes people can get that sense that the way to do life is up and to the right. Like, you know, everything was great. And then I did this. And then I did this. And, a, a, you know, a predictable arc of a story that feels contrived is I had this really low place in my life. But then I met Jesus and then everything turned great. That is not my experience. My world got way more complicated when I started caring about the people that were around me. When I started like actually asking some difficult questions about my own selfishness, this up and to the right nonsense can really be a head fake for people. That idea of a clarifying idea or principle or, th or thing that you do, a collecting idea of cutting out one of your pockets uh, is really helpful for me. Literally every suit, every swimsuit, every pair of sweats, always right pockets, no left pockets. That's hilarious. Think about it today. Be careful when you get those scissors out. I'd get those pants off first. 
<laughs> but I would say to do the things that are these constant reminders, things that remind you about not only the person you are, but who's the guy you're turning into? Like to, like to hover over yourself and say, who is that guy and what does he want? And uh, not what does someone else want him to do or be, but to say, and then to say, ask some questions about like, what are the stories you made up in your life? You know, whether they were true or manufactured, like what are the stories? Little eight-year-old Bobby Goff, would you guess uh, uh, from our quick conversation that, that I'm super insecure? No. Yeah, I'm super insecure. Isn't that crazy? What I've done is I've learned to deal with my insecurity. So little Bobby Goff got in his mind, some stuff happened to all of us, but he got in his mind that everyone would leave him. Like I will be abandoned. And so I made up a story that everyone will leave me. And then what we do is we make up rules, whether we realize it or not, to support the story that we made up to figure out our complicated life. Because at eight, you don't have the tools to deal with things that come your way. And so the rule I made is I'm not going deep with anybody. What I found when I'm 30 and I'm trying to have a relationship with somebody, I'd go like, well, I couldn't because I was spending all my time snorkeling rather than shipwreck diving. Like, why wouldn't I do it? Because everybody's going to leave. So I made a rule that I'm not going deep with anybody because that would be really painful if they blew out on me after I actually disclosed who I was. And so part of me has been spending my time, I'm 62 now, I'm trying to spend my time saying, what are the rules I made to support the stories I made up and go back to the scene of the crime. Just find the little chalk outline of you at eight years old. And then to say, what stories did he make up about his life? So give me an example for you. What's a story you made up about your life to deal with something complicated that you couldn't deal with? I would say that I'm never going to amount to anything. Yeah, isn't that interesting? So what do you know what it is that got that in your head? Yeah, well, I was I was a gifted kid. You know, I was just I was smart and people really told me, wow, you're gonna you're gonna do great things. I systematically, you know, through my teenage years, there was no older men in my life. There was nothing well, I guess there were older men in my life, but I didn't have like guidance in my teenage years and there was no initiation rights. There was no, Hey, this is what you do to become a man, or this is what it means to be a man. I really view my rebelling and my drug abuse as my own self-guided initiation. You know, me and my friends, we initiated ourselves into the, the depths of serious addiction. But what, what ended up happening is my, my whole young adult life is, is full of just screw ups. I mean, nobody looked at what I was doing and thought I was going to amount to anything. And I got a late start. I had a, I had a, a kid at 19, which screwed up any chance of finishing college or doing what young men do. And from 12 to 22, I was not here. I was not really in, in the world. I was in the parallel universe of inebriation. I've had a slightly different path. I I never ended up going back to school. That makes things difficult, you know, not to have that piece of paper. And, um, it's weird. It's, it's, you know, I have the same insecurity thing. I actually have well-made tattooed on my knuckles. Oh, well done. It's sort of a thing like you in the pockets. It's a, it's a daily reminder way to, to break the story and to remind myself that I'm 32 trillion cells working pretty well together. Ah, that's really well said. And it's for you. It's a conversation starter too, where it's like, you know, every time I order a coffee, somebody goes, Oh, what's that mean? And I have to go, Oh yeah. I had really severe body issues. I really couldn't love myself. And this is just a reminder that I'm, I'm pretty okay. Yes. 32 trillion cells working together. Yes. My friend Will once said, you know, I'm, I'm a, a, he didn't have the number, but he was like, I'm a couple billion cells wearing a pair of jeans. (laughs) <laughs> something about that just stuck with me yes it's just a new uh fresh vantage point on a familiar idea for people who are curious like you and i join you in that what we need to do is just take note of what's going on around us 
and take note not only of going on around us, but take note of what's going on within us and get real with that to say, why am I feeling insecure? What is that tied to? If you were out fishing, and I'm not a big fisherman, but uh, if you want to get a big bass uh, and your rod was bent over, I'd reel it in and see, is that a bass or a boot? <laughs> Just fine. Some of us are, are fishing for something really beautiful in our life, but we somehow hooked onto a boot. But it's the courageous work of getting the boot off the hook to say, I want to get back to catching what I came here for. I want to actually, I know what I want. I know why I want it and I know what I'm going to do about it. And so it's, uh, it's, you tend to like, see, like I had a 71 bus way back in the day. And then I decided I wanted to get another one. I swear, as soon as I decided I wanted a 1971 Volkswagen bus, felt like every third car going by me was a 1971 Volkswagen bus. Cause you'll find what you're looking for. If you're looking for uh, fear, you're going to find it. If you're going to look for stuff to bum you out, you'll find that. If you're looking for addiction, you can find that. If you're looking for hope, you can find that. So I want to be a note taker. So even when you said 32 trillion cells, I just jotted that down really quick. 32 trillion cells. And I want to loop back to that. I want to find the important parts and loop back to that to say, what's the adjacent idea to that? Why did that catch my fancy what what's adjacent to that that's what we're trying to do with most of my life most of my activities i'm trying to not go for the obvious but say what's just adjacent to that obvious thing you ought to come down sometime we bought a uh, retreat center it used to be an old young life camp and they put a for sale sign in front of it so i bought it it was actually the place I had met Maria Goff. Uh, she wasn't Maria Goff at the time, <laughs> but it was, uh, we met there 40 years ago. And so I bought this place and I thought, I'm going to make a really bitchin' retreat center. Uh, and we got, gave away all the bunk beds and we put in some leather furniture and we put in a vineyard. Uh, which might press some buttons from you. I don't know if what your addiction was, but uh, that occurred to me that would this be a bad thing to go through a vineyard to get there? And I decided, no, it'd be a beautiful thing. So instead of being worried about this and this and this, I got the adjacent property and I got horses. You, have you spent much time with horses? Yeah, my friend Beth has a ranch called Take a Chance Ranch and she's a licensed therapist who- Come on! a pack of horses and that's how she does her practice now. Oh, I love that. Well, I was thinking the same thing. I hadn't been around horses other than the kind you put a nickel in front of the grocery store and you rock back and forth a couple of times in the fiberglass. So we got this place and it's always been a place where I could go and think and be creative. There's people up there today, evidently, and there'll be people, different people tomorrow. And I just love knowing that I don't need to be part. I, it's not, I'm not center stage on this. I just love setting the table so people can just go do the work they need to do. I just want to create safe place where they can have the conversations they need with whoever it is. If it's marriage stuff they need to sort out, if it's counselors they need to talk to, I just love creating that space. And for me, I find a lot of hope in giving away hope. I don't need to be at the table. I take a, a delight in setting the table. I think that's why making schools resonates with me. I don't need to be part of everything that goes on there. I just love to set the table. And then I know that terrific things will happen in people's lives and I don't need to control those. Again, I just want to influence them. I just want to mention for people curious, so your, your school is part of Love Does in Uganda, right? Yeah. And yep. then your retreat center is called the Oaks, just so people following along. Yeah, yeah. So okay. uh, the, uh, the thing that we did, we did maybe started three and a half years ago, I think. We started building schools in Afghanistan for little girls that the Taliban wouldn't let learn how to read and write. It has been just so neat, even though that country has had a lot of challenges, to see these girls just load them up with books. We actually went to the Taliban after all the crazy that happened uh, several months ago and said, we'd like to open up our school and let our girls go back to it again. And you know what they did? It was like, we did a Jedi thing. They said, yes. And our girls have been back at their seats. 
I got 250 girls in chairs right now in Afghanistan only because we were respectful. We just said, we'd like to go and just teach them math, reading and writing. And, and they said, okay. And I think a lot of people think things aren't possible because they've just been watching the news. And it's not, a, I'm not throwing the news under the bus. I think that's, I am. being well-informed is a good thing, but the in, word well-informed would be important. I want to be a participant. Like, so I don't want to see a news flash about what's going on in Afghanistan. Get on a plane and fly to Kabul. You'll know. It's a little bit unsettling, but I don't know how many times I've done it, but a lot. Yeah, I well, I have completely turned off the, the corporate news. I hate to not be up to date on everything, but God, it just felt like they weren't reporting the news for my benefit. It felt like they were trying to trigger my um, consumer instinct, <laughs> let's just say. Yeah, there's a, a guy again, Paul, in the scriptures, he was bragging about his buddy, Timothy, behind his back. And he said, I don't have anybody like Timothy. He's a guy who takes a genuine interest in the people around him. And I really kind of like that. I think you're that one of those guys that you just take a genuine interest in the people around you. And I don't need to be informed by somebody else to take a genuine interest in the people around me. I just need to be fully present. And it's distraction that's getting us away from that. Maybe people that you know that write say this, but you write the book you need. I wrote a book called Undistracted because I was finding myself so deeply distracted by everything. And so I've just started kind of like slowing it down a little bit to say, here are a few things that are important and all of the rest is just a lot of noise in my life. And so I'm just eliminating some of the noise because I was finding myself wanting to shout louder and I don't want to shout louder. I only raise my voice when I'm yodeling and I've never yodeled. So what I want to do is eliminate some of the distractions. And maybe you've done that by limiting some of the inputs from others about what information you're getting, or maybe you can get it in a different form. You'll never be taking a genuine interest in the people around you. Yeah. I think the information age, one of the I, there's so much amazing about it. I love being able to just hop on my phone and look up who, what was his name? Diosthenes? Diosthenes. Diosthenes. Get on there. You're going to take him. I can't wait that that information, which for thousands of years would have been nearly impossible to get, is at my fingertips. But one of the things that I feel like we're reckoning with and figuring out, because this is very new for us great apes, this connection, is that the scope is so Big. At any moment, you're taking a screenshot of 300 million Americans or 7 billion people if you're looking at world issues. The founder of CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, yeah, he, he said that during his observation of depressed people, he found three patterns were almost always the case. And that's the thought, I am terrible, the world is terrible, and my future is bleak. That Those three make make a scene of clinical depression, let's just say, if you believe those three things. Yeah. Whenever I'm not feeling well, those are the first three things that I check in on. Like, do I feel like I'm terrible? Do I feel like the world's terrible? Is the future bleak? I feel like us collectively, we have to retreat back into our communities and start where our feet are. That's my, my journey is like, when I walk through town now, I notice the people volunteering to clean up the flower beds you know, who aren't city workers, but they've just decided to be there on a Sunday. There's so much that can be done in a local community. And it's once you start focusing on the world, it almost makes you stop because it's just too big, too big of a thing. Yeah. There's a, a friend in Israel or occupied Palestine <laughs> that will always say, lift your eyes, Bob, lift your eyes in his conversation, these aren't words of correction. These are words of invitation. Lift your eyes a little higher. And there's something beautiful about that, uh, to just lift your eyes. And then when you were describing seeing somebody tending to the flowers in the common areas, I was thinking, that's neat. That's you're like actually lifting your eyes and seeing what's going on. Have your head on the swivel. Get to know your neighbors. Forget going across the ocean. You'll never find anything. Only two times in the Bible did somebody go across an ocean. Paul got shipwrecked and Jonah got swallowed. <laughs> but there's a ton about loving your neighbor, like the person across the street. And 
bake them a pie. And if they don't want it, I do. Like just, just those small acts of kindness. We throw a parade every year on our block for our neighbors. And it's the one time that everybody just kind of comes out. And the only rule for the parade is that everybody has to be in it and nobody can watch it. And so maybe if you were to think about that as a metaphor for life, everybody in, nobody watching. That would be like kind of a great way. I don't want a bunch of people looking at my life. I don't want to be performing for other people. I just want to say, man, just get in the parade. You can dress up like you and just say like, let's just go from our blocks only eight houses long. Now there's about 800 people that show up <laughs> every year for this parade. By the time everybody lines up, we're at our house where it finishes. But there's something really beautiful in that celebration because there's a total of nobody on the sidelines watching. <laughs> Is that another person? Another call. Uh -huh. I'll just, I'll have to get back to it where we'll spend a lot of time on phone calls with other people. <laughs> well, I won't keep you here too long, but I do want to ask you a couple more questions if that's okay. Yeah, fire. One of the things that I feel like religious people got right when I talk about that reading I do, where it says, look to where religious people are right is the, the community aspect and the gathering of people in one place. There's a part of me that mourns the loss of the, the church as the gathering place, which, you know, I went to church growing up, but I was looking at all the areas of my life when people will kind of mutter things like, ah, people don't change. I'll go, well, what about me? You know, I'm a, I'm a criminal. I'm a drug addict. I'm a liar and a thief and a cheat. I've changed. I look at the other areas of my life where I haven't. There's one big difference, which is that all the areas of my life where I've had radical psychic personality changes all had to do with community. It was because of a recovery community and all the other areas, like let's say learning how to do my taxes on time or learning how to look at my finances, even though I'm very poor and that's scary. These haven't changed. These have been the things that come up new years after new years as the resolution, but they've always been things that I've done in isolation and in solidarity. And it's never once worked. The idea of a gathering place where a carpenter in the community, if he's doing bad work, has to show up on Sunday and see all the people that he ripped off, has to face them and has to reintegrate back into the community and go, oh man, I'm sorry, I did overbill you. Or it has to look the person that he did the work for and, and be proud. I'm very curious about how we can, how we can build communities that achieve the, the same purpose of what happens when we get together. One of the interesting things that I heard, I said something very prejudiced about Islam to my girlfriend. She studied Islam for two years and she's from England. I'm, I'm an American and I grew up with 9-11, right? I was 11. So there's, as my best friend Reese said, it's like, it's very hard to be a blank slate. You know, we were totally programmed about what the Islamic faith was. And part of my homework was to, to listen to some Islamic scholars so I could come back to my partner and say, hey, I'm sorry I said that comment. I called Muhammad a warlord, which is very offensive. I was listening to their to this gentleman talk about the purpose of, of praying. I think it's five times a day, I forget. But of the prayer, and he said, it's to, it's to fight the tyranny of self. It's to get away from the world, to get away from your own selfish needs, and to just reconnect with your values and what you want to do. I thought that was just beautiful. And these moments when you come together, whether it's a, you take time to, to pray or you take time to be with other humans, I think they help you fight the tyranny of self. Yeah. I think I agree a hundred percent about the power of community. I was just, as you were saying that I was thinking back about the original church, they called it the Acts church because there was a book called Acts. And it said in two places, two and four, it said they broke bread together and they had things in common. And I love that. They just broke bread together. And doesn't mean they swapped pink slips to their trucks. You wouldn't want mine. <laughs> it's got so many miles on it. It smokes. It's just like, it's bad. But we could have shared experiences. We could be available to one another. But not just that I'm generally available. Like, I know you're hurting. And I say, hey, if you need me, just call. Be like, if you're hurting, that's the last thing you're going to do. You don't know what you need. So it, it's not meant to be a nothing kind of response, 
but instead to just say, go find the hurting people, hungry people, thirsty people, sick people, strange people, naked people, people in jail. Like Jesus said, find them, you'll find me. He didn't say religious people visit. <laughs> he said hungry, thirsty, sick, strange, naked people in jail. And James, he talked about widows and orphans. If you find them, you're going to find me. And so that for me has been super helpful to have a community of people that want to huddle around hungry people, thirsty people, sick people, strange people, naked people, people in jail. That's the kinds of things that I want to cut to the chase to say, what are we doing about that? I don't want to just agree. I want to take agreeing that there's something wrong and somebody needs to help. I want to take that off the table and to say, how can I get some skin in the game? To the point of doing that in community, like we all have this shared experience and we all walk away fed. It's crazy. It's like stone soup. Did you read that when you were a kid? You know, stone soup. Yeah, stone soup. You got to go get that. It's a story about some travelers and they pull into a little village and they're hungry and they say, could we have some food? And everybody had a reason why they couldn't give them food. And so they set up a big kettle in the middle of the village, filled it full of water, lit a fire under it. And when people came by, they said, what are you making? They said, we're making stone soup. And they had three little stones in the bottom and they ladled a little out and they sipped it. And they say, you know what we need? Carrots. And that person said, I've got some carrots and they brought their carrots. And then they, the next person came by and they said, you know, we could make, make some awesome soup here if we had some cabbage. And predictably at the end of the story, everybody got fed because people threw in what they had. And I think that's when community is at its best. When you throw in what you've learned through the courageous battles that you fought, when I throw in my experience, but I do it humbly. I don't say you need to believe what I believe. You need to have your life experience be mine. You need to want what I want to say, I'm just so delighted to have a new friend. Like, this is great. And then give the way that people can get a hold of you. Like, don't just say, hey, great to meet you. See ya. To just say, how could I be super available. Now that's not for everybody. Sweet Maria Goff, availability is not her highest value. It's availability to everybody she married, which is me, everybody she made, which is our three kids, everybody they married, which are in-laws and everybody they made, which are grandkids. So she's uber available to that small group of people and not to anybody else. So I go out speaking places and she doesn't come because she's like, if it doesn't have to do with you, my kids, whoever they married or whoever they made, I'm not going. This is 35 years of that. We're wonderfully different, but we're still one. And I think sometimes people like you and your partner to say the goal isn't sameness, it's oneness. So can we be one without being the same? And I think some people have a difficult time resolving that. I don't think you'd have a difficult time resolving that. Do I have, have I read that right? That you don't, you just invite people just that are wonderfully different than you. Yeah, I think you do have that right. Yeah. So I just the hope that when we go through that threshold, we pass through a threshold of humility, right? That's just that there's humility that we pass uh, by as the, a bit of a gatekeeper. Because I don't want somebody with, I don't want people to meet my opinions. I want them to meet love. I want them. And for me, I identify that in Jesus. For other people, they identify that in other ways. And I'm not going loose on doctrine. I'm just going big on love. People will find what's true in their life. <clears throat> and I don't, do, I don't need to be the guy that is the umpire, call of balls and strikes. I'm a base coach. <laughs> I just say, run your race. You know, run this race with endurance, completely undistracted by all of the crazy going around you. That's just another letter from Paul. He just said, go do that. Don't be distracted. Run your race. Tend to your own fire. Don't tend to everybody else's. Wow. Bob, you've been so generous with your time. Oh, what a treat. This is the most selfish thing I've done all day. Get okay. a chance to meet a new friend and talk a little bit. Come on, let's not make this our last. Let's just make this our first. I'm just a phone call away. You know, I'll answer. <laughs> Apparently I do know that. So 
if you could help take us out, I'd love to know, I've asked this question many different ways, and I think I'm just going to ask it a little bit different than I normally do. If based off your experience, you were trying to teach the next generation of young people with your, let's say you had, you turned the Oaks into a, a youth camp and you were to say with the life that I've lived, this is what I've learned. These are the, these are the values that you should stick to whether or not you follow Christ. Like I do, these are the important values I've learned from my time being a Christian, or these are the, the things that are most important, these couple things. And this world can be really frustrating because we judge everyone else. This is a tr true psychological bias. We judge everyone else based on their actions and us on our intentions. And that's how, mm. that's how you can wow. end up having done nothing really productive, but you still feel like, well, I'm a great person because you had all these warm, fuzzy thoughts in your head. You just forgot to translate them into actions. Yeah. So if you were to just like, what would be the, the cornerstones of the Bob Goff curriculum? Yeah, I think I would, that makes me laugh, but I would go back just because faith matters to me to, again, Paul, he said, uh, be prepared to make a defense for the hope that's within you. In other words, know what you believe and why you believe it. Whatever those things are, don't try to control people, influence them in beautiful ways, influence them with your love. There's a lot of the evangelical community that read this as marching orders to make a defense and use war metaphors and all that. They stop reading there and the sentence goes on. He says, but to do it with kindness and respect. And I think if we could return to that idea, to know what you believe and why you believe it, but to do it with kindness and respect. Like I'm crystal clear about why I'm doing what I'm doing. I don't always do it the way I want to do it because I live this internally conflicted life. I keep not doing what I do want to do and doing what I don't want to do. Yet my hope would be that curriculum would be to do whatever you're doing with kindness and respect. That won't always be reciprocated uh, because people are on edge. I don't know if more than other times, but certainly now, like there's people on edge. And, and what I want to do is have them meet a little bit more kindness. That doesn't mean I'm the Pillsbury Doughboy. I'm a trial lawyer. I've never lost a case. I'm just, uh, it's not because I'm a good lawyer. I'm a good picker. I only just get cases evidently that can't be lost. <laughs> So what I want to do is be a little better picking the fights that we have. Like, is this, does everything need to be Gettysburg? I don't know if it does. I think sometimes we make really small things out of really big things and we make really big things out of really small things. And so I, I would coach myself and others to just add a couple beats. Like you don't need to, like do it right now. My first instinct isn't always my best one. So just leave it in the thought bubble a little bit, run it through the filter. Is this kind and respectful? Step over the threshold of uh, humility. The Yazidi people got such a raw deal when ISIS rolled through there, but there's a sect within the Yazidi people that has a threshold that you actually, you cannot step on the threshold. You must step over the threshold. Uh, to enter in. It's really beautiful. And I'm the guy that was about to step on the threshold and somebody like, because <laughs> they were, didn't want me to blow it in front of the leader of this entire sect. Like he's the grand big dude. He said, dude, don't step on the threshold. And it turns out that that's what would be, how would have been really offensive to them. And so what I want to do is realize that humility is a great threshold for me to say, man, if there's something I've got that you need, I, I hope I'm listening closely enough that whether you say it or I sense it, that I'll have the guts to do something about it. Thank you, Bob, so much. Man, thanks for making time for me this morning. Great talking to you. I know a lot of people will be encouraged by seeing your courage in the world. Thanks for listening to the How to Human podcast. Remember, if you'd like to support this show, you can go to patreon.com slash howtohuman. That will directly support the show, help us move into a beautiful new studio space I hope we can afford one day, and continue making this program, which is important to me and I hope something that you enjoy too. 
I really hope that I earn your support one day. But if not, you can always throw us a kind comment in the iTunes store by giving us a rating. And you can also help us out by just sharing this with your friends and people you think would enjoy this program. If you can't support us directly, that is an amazing free way to help support us and maybe find other people who are in a better place to support us financially. Thank you so much for listening. I'm glad you enjoyed this podcast. Until next time, have a great day.